Hello and welcome to Round All Round We Go. I'm Emily, I use she and they pronouns. And I'm Paul and I use he and him pronouns. And today we are going to Northwood Station. Now that we've actually confirmed where this station is on the Metropolitan Line, we've done lots of research around it and we've discovered that this is actually sort of, in a way, in sort of an idea sense, the birthplace of Metroland. And there's lots of stories surrounding this station. And there's about five people that are relevant, but they have about 35 names between them. But let's start as we always do with our rundown of facts. Northwood Station opened on the 1st of September 1887 and is served by the London Underground Metropolitan Line. The station is in Fair Zone 6 and in the London Borough of Hillingdon. In 2019, Northwood served 2.74 million passengers per year. By 2020, that had declined to 1.52 million passengers. Northwood Station has no step-free access at all. The current station building was designed by the London Transport Architect Department. We haven't been able to find details for the previous incarnations of the building. The origin of the name Northwood is, unsurprisingly, the Northern Wood, in this case the wood north of Ryslip. By 1435, the area was recorded as being called Northwood, spelt slightly differently from today. The station is served by London buses 282, 331 and H11. And Labyrinth number 9 out of 270 can be found on the northbound platform. The original Northwood Station building was built by the Metropolitan Railway Company and looked much like the building still at Chalfont and Latimer Station, so a fairly classic Victorian brick-built one-storey station building. That was rebuilt during the 1930s when Northwood Hills Station was constructed one stop to the south on the Metropolitan Line. The station was rebuilt again in the 1960s when two extra tracks were built to the west of the station to extend the four-track railway all the way up to Moore Park Station one stop to the north. The new station was designed by the London Transport Architects Department and is described as a low, undistinguished brick building, which really sums it up. It is basically just a brick box sitting on top of the road bridge that goes over the railway. Inside that is the passenger ticket hall. It's got St James floor tiles. We're still trying to find out what they are exactly, but they're basically just sort of cream-coloured, fairly large square floor tiles. There's the gate line. There's a fairly high ceiling with clear story windows all around. And then there's two sets of stairs, one down to each of the platforms down at track level. Above the platforms, there are corrugated metal canopies to provide a bit of shelter to the passengers. That's really about all there is to say for it as a station. There are a couple of sidings, one that can be used to turn back trains coming from the north, so it's handy when there is any disruption around central London, and also that siding is used for the rail addition train to reverse when it's running in the autumn, so it can just go back and forth on the northern section of the line. And also, in what used to originally be the station goods yard, there is a now a car park and a small stub siding, which can be used to remove redundant rolling stock when it needs to be sent for scrap. And that's something we're going to come back to a bit later on in the episode. Shortly after the Met, 
started its life in 1863, they started getting a little bit upset, well, quite upset, that lots of other companies like the Great Western Railway, the Great Northern, they were using the Met stretch of track within London. But because the stretch of track within London was so small, the income they were getting from those other companies using their railway was not great. And they really wanted to reach out into commuter areas and sort of become a mainline railway on their own. We talked a little bit about this in our Finchley Road episode because they had the Metropolitan and St. John Wood Railway, which was its own company, but a lot of it was owned by the Met and controlled by the Met. And they started saying, okay, well, this is sort of leading towards Middlesex. That's a place where there's a lot of commuters. Let's extend our lines that way. So Edward Watkins, who was the Met's chair at the time, started talking to the Duke of Buckingham. Now, the Duke of Buckingham, I kept seeing his name, and he was just the Duke of Buckingham over and over again. And I'm like, why don't they say this person's actual name so we know who he is? And I looked it up, and there's a very good reason. Paul, are you going to tell me his name? Richard Plantagenet, Campbell Temple, Nugent Bridges, Chandos Grenville, third Duke of Buckingham and Chandos. Oh, what a dream name. We're going to use that over and over again. So the Duke of Buckingham... I won't, we won't say it again now. He was the chair of the LNWR until 1861. He was a politician in his own right, and he was quite pro-railways. And he was promoting a railway that was called the London and Aylesbury Railway, which is a bit of a misleading name because it was actually due to lead from Aylesbury to Rick... Rickmansworth. I hate the word Rickmansworth. I'm, I'm not looking forward to when we do that station. It was due to run from Aylesbury to Rickmansworth. And then a further plan that was sort of schemed up between Sir Edward Watkins and... Richard Plantagenet, Campbell Temple, Nugent Bridges, Chandos Grenville, third Duke of Buckingham and Chandos. And that would sort of connect the Met as it moved out into Middlesex with this London and Aylesbury railway. In 1874, they get two Acts of Parliament passed. One is sponsored by Watkins, so that's the Kingsbury and Harrow Railway Act. And then one is sponsored by... Richard Plantagenet, Campbell Temple, Nugent Bridges, Chandos Grenville, third Duke of Buckingham and Chandos. And that was the Harrow and Rixmanworth Act. Those were both passed in 1874. But unfortunately, shortly after that, the financial backing for the London and Aylesbury Railway collapsed. And at the same time... Richard Plantagenet, Campbell Temple, Nugent Bridges, Chandos Grenville, third Duke of Buckingham and Chandos took a role as the governor of Madras, and that was a five-year appointment, so he was kind of out of the picture. But Watkins still wanted to push ahead with the plans for the Met, so they continued building out to Harrow. And the original plan was that the Metropolitan St. John Woods Railway would build their extension from Swiss Cottage out via Kingsbury and Neesden, and then the Met would build from there to Harrow. But they were taking too much time, so the Met just took over them and built it anyways. Watkins was very sort of single-mindedly, I'm going to build these railways. They opened the line to Harrow on the 2nd of August, 1880. And then he said, I want to keep going. I don't care if the backers or the other people building the railways have backed out. We're just going to do it ourselves. So he persuaded the board to build the Harrow to Aylesbury link. In 1879, a new bill was passed that would let the Met extend to Rickmansworth via Pinner and via Northwood as well. And that received royal assent in 1880. So the same year, you've got the extension to Harrow. You've also got royal assent to build all the way to Rickmansworth. Rick? Rick, just say it for me, Paul. Rickmansworth. Thank you. And then there was a bill in 1881 that approved the line to go all the way out to Aylesbury. So the Met reached Pinner on the 25th of May, 1885. And it met Rickmansworth 
on the 1st of September, 1887. The only stop between those two was Northwood, so Northwood was opened at the same time as Rickmansworth on the 1st of September, 1887, which gets us to having Northwood Station. Once the railway reached Northwood, we have another character entering the story, whose name is almost as good as our first character, not quite. Now, we're going to go into a little diversion about him because he's a fascinating person, but his development of the area around Northwood kind of germinated the idea in the Metropolitan Railway that they could also develop lands and build what became Metroland. But we'll get into that later. We're going to focus on him first. So in 1887, the year that Northwood Station opened, a huge amount of the land around it was bought up by a man called Frank Murray Maxwell Halliwell Carew, who embarked on a development of the area for housing. Now, Emily said he should be called the man with six names, which I thought sounded like somebody out of an adventure novel. And in fact, it turns out his life really lives up to that. It turns out that developing Northwood is about the least interesting thing he did in his life. Frank Murray Maxwell Halliwell Carew was born in 1866. His grandfather was Admiral Sir Benjamin Halliwell Carew, who had been one of the captains serving under Nelson at the Battle of the Nile. He'd sunk the French ship L'Orient and then gave Nelson a coffin made from L'Orient's mask, which Nelson was very fond of, displayed in his cabin, and was the coffin used when Nelson died at the Battle of Trafalgar. Uh, Carew's father was Benjamin Francis Halliwell Carew, born in 1830, seemed to have served in the army, went bankrupt by 1875 and died a couple of years later. Frank Carew went to Stubbington House Boarding School at the same time as the Antarctic explorer Robert Falcon Scott was there. In 1883, he started at Magdalen College in Cambridge, but left after a year and joined the army as a lieutenant. In 1886, his life started to get really interesting. He inherited the Carew family estates, which included property in Beddington, Croydon, Mitcham, Walton-on-the-Hill and the Portobello estate in Middlesex, which combined gave him an income reported at £7,000 per year, the equivalent of a million pounds per year today. In 1887, he was removed from the army for absence without leave, which I'm sure was connected to the fact that at the age of 21, he was now earning the equivalent of a million pounds per year. And 1887 is then when his life starts to get really quite exciting, because in that year, he married Edith Morgan Gellibrand, who was the daughter of the former Advocate General of Madras. She was a famous actress who performed on stage under the name Edith Chester. And together they had two sons called Frank Reginald Carew, born in 1888, and Roy Halliwell Carew, born in 1889. And also in that year, he took opportunity of the fact that he now had an awful lot of money. The railway had been built through Northwood, and the owner of 767 acres of land around Northwood Station had put them on sale. So Frank bought them up and started development of this area. The following year, he took a bit of a break from his property development and took a hunting trip to Zanzibar, which is now the east coast of Tanzania. And almost as soon as he landed, basically the first shot he took with his rifle, it exploded, injuring his face and hand. Had to get urgent medical treatment, came back to London and sued the people who sold him the rifle. He said he'd intended to buy a Holland and Holland rifle made by the factory in Kensal Green, which we featured in our episode on yeah. that station, but instead had been offered one at half the price and took advantage of that, but it had turned out to be of faulty manufacturer. And 
the maker of the rifle then settled for £1,000 in the court case, which is the equivalent of £138,000 today. And with that little adventure over, he carried on with his property development plan. He divided up all the land around Northwood into plots of land and sold them off with the stipulation that houses could not be sold for less than £750, which is the equivalent of at least hundred grand today. So kind of... Still cheap in today's terms. Yeah, cheap by modern terms, but I think then it would have been the equivalent yeah. of a much more expensive house today because property prices have gone so nuts. So basically they were keeping it as a fairly upper middle class suburb. And intriguingly, he built the roads around the area and named them... Well, some of them, Murray, Maxwell, Hallowell and Carew, were named after himself. The roads Roy and Reginald were named after his sons. And then Chester Road was named after his wife... There was also reputedly originally an Edith Road, which was renamed Dean Road because of the falling out with his wife, which began at the same time. Because in 1890, his wife started divorce proceedings against him. She stated that he was a man of loose pursuits who favoured the companionship of prize fighters, frequenters of racecourses, and loose ladies who indulged in the midnight amusements of dancing saloons. Sounds like a good time. It does sound like a good time, but to put a less exciting point on it, he was also, from the testimony, really quite violently and horrifically abusive towards her on multiple occasions. And also, he was having an affair and now living with Mrs. Alice Seymour, who, weirdly, was famous for looking exactly like his wife, um, to the point that this was sort of used on stage and that she was often mistaken for him around town. Strangely, despite the fact that he was in the middle of divorcing his wife, on the 5th of February 1892, he was prosecuted for assaulting a theatre manager for insulting his wife by removing her from a performance. Uh, did, and did, he re did he replace her with Alice Seymour? Well, quite possibly, uh, because... This is where things get really weird. Only a couple of days later, on the 8th of February, the decree Nisi for the divorce was granted on the grounds of cruelty and his adultery, which is well deserved. But then, just after that, the Queen's proctor got involved. Now, this was a man by the wonderfully Dickensian name of Montague Crackenthorpe and was a solicitor acting on behalf of the Crown in divorce cases who could sometimes intervene if he thought that couples were not actually acting sufficiently separately to deserve being divorced. Divorce being a very difficult thing to get back in those days. And he reckons that Kuru and his wife Edith had been seen in public on multiple occasions dining at the Savoy restaurant and therefore did not deserve a divorce because they were basically still together. But it turned out that it was the mistress, Alice Seymour, who was dining with him, who looked so identical that people were getting them confused. Anyway... His wife, Edith, was sort of testified in court to effect of all this and just how generally rotter her husband was and the divorce got granted. So in February of 1892, which was a very busy month for him, his business partnership with Reginald Francis St. Fear Vale dissolved. Intriguingly, his business partner, Reginald Francis St. Fear Vale, was the person who had falsely reported to the Queen's proctor that Frank was dining with his wife and therefore, it seemed that maybe that was what prompted the uh, breakup of their business partnership when that was found to be fraudulent. But anyway, at this point, it kind of seems his fortunes may have been starting to dissolve. There aren't really any more reports of what he was up to until 1914, outbreak of the First World War. And 
He joins the army as a lieutenant in a motor machine gun unit, which means riding round on a motorbike with a big machine gun. So at this point, he would have been 48 in the army. He gave his name as Hallowell Carew, missing out all the extra bits. So seems perhaps to have been trying to hide his previous identity, but did very well in the army. By 1917, he was a captain in the tank corps in charge of four tanks, and he was given the military cross for his bravery in the Second Battle of Ypres. The citation for that reads... For conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty, he personally led his section of tanks on foot to their objective under very heavy shelling and intense machine gun fire. He displayed admirable coolness and courage, going from tank to tank and helping them out of difficulties, and it was entirely due to his total disregard for personal danger that they were able to reach the infantry when the latter was held up. So literally running round in the mud of the battlefields of mainland Europe, as he was being shelled to help out his tank. So clearly quite a brave person for all his massive failings. By the end of the war, he was a major in charge of 16 tanks. And then interestingly, after the war ended, he stayed in the army. In 1920, he was serving in Ireland during the Irish War of Independence, still in charge of tanks. But then he moved into the Intelligence Corps. Now, on November the 20th, 1920, there was an IRA assassination plot against several British army officers, which killed 15 of them. But Carew managed to escape that because he'd moved out of the house the IRA thought he was living in to a different one across the street. He saw all the IRA people going into the house where he previously lived and started shooting at them out of the window. The following year, on the day before the trial was supposed to start for the people who'd been caught for previously trying to assassinate him, he survived another assassination attempt in a coffee shop by the IRA. After that war was over. In 1922, he joins the British police in Palestine, which suggests to me that, okay, if he was still incredibly wealthy, joining up the army in the First World War was seen as the patriotic thing to do. Maybe serving in the Irish War of Independence, fighting for the British Empire was still seen as the patriotic thing to do, but probably a bit less so. But joining the Palestine police seems to suggest to me that he was probably running out of money by that point, and perhaps his million pound a year equivalent had long since disappeared. But then in 1926, his term of service in Palestine comes to an end, and weirdly, between 1926 and 1927, he's recorded as having travelled between the UK and New York four times, and each time he gave a different age, 54, 48, 54, and 51 again, despite the fact that he was actually 60 by this point. Then in 1939, with the outbreak of the Second World War, he again applied to join the army, giving his age as 63 when he was actually 73. That doesn't seem to have convinced anyone, because in 1943 he was reported as having died and was not serving in the army at the time. That is quite an <laughs> incredible life by all accounts. Yes. Um, I, I have a vague suspicion based on all of that, and especially the fact that he was serving in the intelligence services in Ireland, that perhaps there was a bit more spying going on during his career. Things like the fact that it seems he was not anything like so rich anymore, but was still travelling back and forth between the UK and New York an awful lot in the 1920s. Maybe there was something intelligence related going on, but I mean, you don't even need to add that to what was already a crazy, crazy life he was living. But he obviously developed the area directly around Northwood and inspired, to some degree, Metroland. So that's why he's important to us. Yes.
we want to start talking about Metroland properly. And I think lots of people know about Metroland, this development that the Metropolitan Railway did in the northwest parts of London and what was at the time Middlesex. But it's a big, big story. So we're going to cover it in different parts. This being our first station in Metroland, we'll start with sort of the beginnings of Metroland. And Metroland really began because you had these railways with the right to compulsory purchase land, and they usually bought a lot more land than they needed because they weren't sure exactly what they'd need to use. But they were forced to get rid of the surplus land within 10 years, although you could apply for an extension if you had the intention of using it. Railways could rent this land, but they couldn't sell it. And at the end, it had to be sold back to either the original owner if they wanted them or their descendants, and if not, nearby landowners. So they, could not, they couldn't benefit from having all this extra land. But this didn't apply to the Met, because the Circle Completion Act of 1874, which we touched on a little bit in our South Kensington episode, that allowed them to grant building leases and sell ground rights because they were within central London. It wasn't a railway, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. This was within central London. There were so many densely crowded homes and buildings. They were allowed to do that. Probably also farmers had better political representation than inner London homeowners. <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. As the Met extended further out of London, they started to draw more revenue from the areas that they owned. And they originally weren't that keen on developing these areas. Watkins, who we spoke about earlier, the Edward Watkins, the chair of the Met, he was worried that Parliament might force them to sell the lands if they made too much money. And he was also concerned about developing these lands and that creating artificially raised stock prices for the Met and that getting them into financial difficulties. And he was busy trying to extend under a new channel tunnel he was building. Yes, as well, he, he was he? doing all sorts of things. Well, I think Watkins will be its own definitely episode of one of these metropolitan line stations. But in the 1880s, they started developing a few different areas. So there was a Wilston Park estate, which started leasing in 1881, and Neesden Cottages in 1882. And particularly Neesden Cottages were built for railway staff. And in fact, we'll get into them in our Neesden episode, but have names reflecting that. And they started to sort of look at what people like our friend with six names, Carew, was doing and go, maybe we can make a little bit more money from this. And in 1885, Watkins is on record as suggesting that railway companies might, with great good, be permitted to build little colonies contiguous to their railways. But he was very busy building railways, as Paul has already pointed out. And so they didn't quite get on to that right away, or he didn't lead the charge on that. Instead of just directly developing these areas itself... The railway set up the Metropolitan Railway Surplus Land Committee in 1885, and that was dealing with property and land transactions, but not interfering with the running of the railway or impacting investors and investment in the railway. Now, some people objected to this, funnily enough, because they were worried it would turn hostile, like their previous relationship with the Metropolitan District Railway. And they were also worried that the market value of both the companies would fall with this expansion into land buying. But they were a separate thing. So they were a surplus land committee. They were vested to the Met Railway and the property sales were done under the seal of the railway and leases were also granted by the railway. So they were originally just interested in London itself. 
But they started looking at and really starting to develop some small areas of development further out into Middlesex, where the lengths of the Metropolitan Railway went. Now, the person particularly interested in this was Robert H. Selby, who became the general manager of the Met in 1908. It sounds to me like Robert Shelby from Peaky Blinders, so I always picture Robert Selby looking like Killian Murphy. If you also find him very attractive, you can do that as well. But Robert Selby, as a general manager, thought the sort of Wembley to Aylesbury stretch was really attractive land and that the company wasn't making enough out of it and that people really wanted to move out of there. It was becoming trendy to move outside of London. And there were lots of different projects like the Ryslip Northwood Garden City project. That wasn't a project by the Met. It was mostly done by the local council and King's College, Cambridge, that owned the area. But the Met was doing a few developments itself. And they started seeing, oh yeah, people might actually want to live in a place like this Garden City in Ryslip in 1909. Maybe we should really push this a little bit more. And by 1912, Selby is saying, we're not getting the proper benefits from the Surplus Land Committee. So in 1912, he started to suggest to the major shareholders in the railway that they should form a separate company to carry out land development proposals. And they started really pushing for this. And, you know, he was pushing even before they had a separate company for the Surplus Land Committee to develop more. You already, by 1915, had the advertising slogan Metroland. The war stopped this. But the idea of forming this separate company wasn't picked up again until the war finished in 1918 and carried out in 1919. And at the time, Prime Minister Lloyd George was really pushing for creating a Britain that was, quote unquote, fit for heroes to live in. So people coming back from the war, they wanted these nice houses for them to live in. And Robert Selby was really keen to jump in on this. And in March 1919, a private company was registered under the name Northwestern Estates Syndicate Limited with the power to purchase lands, and one of the directors of this company was Selby. Now, the Met was going to loan money to this syndicate, and it was going to be repaid with interest, and they were all ready to set this up, but they consulted the Honorable Frank Russell Casey, and he decided that... It wouldn't be a great idea because it would allow a railway company to purchase land but not have the required statutory authority, and that might not stand up if they were attacked in court. So they backed away from creating this syndicate. Well, they'd already created it, but they backed away from actually doing any, anything with it. And in May 1919, they withdrew the proposal and instead proposed the railway company agree that the estate company can use its name and to give it all the possible assistance they could possibly want, and that in return, the railway company would get to nominate the chairman and two of the directors for a period of 10 years. So the Metropolitan Railway Country Estates Company was formed in June 1919 and was incorporated with the purpose of acquiring lands from the Northwestern Syndicate Limited and the Met. So they were taking these lands they basically already had, but buying them from a separate company that had the directors of the Met, but wasn't the Met. So we're all following that? All following that. <laughs> now, though, as I said, this was a brainchild and had the directors of the Met, they weren't allowed to invest in the project themselves. But of course, They'd make more money if this did well for both the Met and themselves as directors of it. So they gave the services of their surveyors, their valuers, and their publicity department. 
as well as loaning the money from the Met. So they were really invested in this because it's just going to make everyone more money generally if there's more people living along the railway lines and using the railway. And once you got this 1919 Metropolitan Railway Country Estates Company, that's when they really ramped up the publicity, just doing everything they could to push people to live out there. And we'll do a whole episode, one of our future episodes on Metroland stations about this level of publicity. But in, the, in an early 1920s handbook, the area around Northwood and Ryslip is described as Heroes Lake District, which sounds a lot Okay, I don't want to insult Northwood and Ryslip, but it's definitely pushing that a lot. Interestingly, this whole development of Metroland is one of the reasons why the Metropolitan Railway was so resistant to the 1933 takeover of the Metropolitan by the London Passenger Transport Board or the creation of the London Passenger Transport Board because they had all this land. But we'll get to that in a later episode. Because, of course, this is an episode on Northwood, we have an original Metroland brochure from 1931. Paul's going to read the Northwood section. In contrast with many townships on the Metropolitan Extension Line, there is little that is ancient about Northwood, except perhaps the name of the original hamlet. It is the railway that has made Northwood a modern suburb in a beautiful country setting. There are practically two Northwoods and the Northwood which is the more conspicuous from the railway is not the one that has made Northwood celebrated. This was laid out apparently with the object of setting down as many small houses as possible of the same pattern on an acre of ground, with little regard for the preservation of the old amenities. But the other Northwood, which is not so well seen from the train, is a place of charming villas, large and small, extending on the south side of the line towards the hill which rises to Batchworth Heath, and on the north side, up the hill towards Eastbury. There is much high ground about Northwood, from the top of Haste Hill, 312 feet high. One of the most pleasing panoramas near London is disclosed. On the high ground to the north, the Oxhay Woods retain their ancient charm. Northwood Church is at the foot of the hill leading towards Rickmansworth. It is a flint with a red-tiled roof and small slate steeple, and dates from 1854, when a new parish was formed out of the original parish of Ryslip. The most interesting church in the neighbourhood is at Harefield, three miles to the west. It is full of beautiful monuments of the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. The Northwood Golf Club is the oldest on the Metropolitan Line, and still maintains its deservedly high reputation and popularity. It extends over many acres towards Pawsfield and the Reservoir. The Haste Hill Golf Course, beyond the Northwood Recreation Ground, has been extended to a full-size 18-hole course. This is a public course maintained by the Ryslip Northwood Council, which recently obtained the sanction of the Ministry of Health to the purchase of the additional acres required for this latest extension. I absolutely love that because we know they didn't own the area around the station where those small houses are that they're talking about. That was the area sold off by Carew. So they're like, oh, this horrible area around the station. But if you go a little bit farther out, you'll see where our houses are. And they're beautiful and it's lovely and idyllic and it's countryside. And we actually also have an advert for one of those houses. So this is the advert for the Gatehill Estate, Northwood. Full particulars available from Harry Neal Limited of Northwood. Gatehill is 400 feet above sea level, 8 minutes walk from Northwood Station, good roads lit with street lamps, main drainage, company's water, gas, electric light and telephone. The land is freehold and priced at £5 per foot of frontage. 
As houses are only built to order, prospective purchasers have full choice of site and plans can be prepared to suit their actual requirements. No charge is made for preparing plans and estimates. And then there's a little sort of footnote at the bottom saying, say you saw it in Metroland. So they're trying to make quite sure if you're going to buy one of those houses, let the advertiser know that it was uh, putting their little ad in Metroland that is what got them the business. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about that is we know that this was always a quite wealthy neighborhood and they're keep they're they're pushing that message and they're beautiful houses to be yeah. fair they're really grand kind of detached houses style. yeah they're huge and and we have a image in one of the books we have from 1911 of a sort of mock coronation ceremony which of course if you couldn't watch the coronation on tv you just had to create your mock one and that's from 1911 and there's a Herod's van on the street and apparently this Herod's van would come out all the time and sell things to people from Herod's who obviously, you know, didn't want to make the long journey into London. And that was, you know, the book states that that was a regular site. So the Amazon of its day. It was the Amazon of its day, but Amazon will give you any price range, whereas Herod only gives you the wealthy stuff. The John Lewis van of its day. <laughs> yes, it was. So yeah, it, well... <laughs> Not if you're the prime minister, apparently that's not good enough for you. But um, yeah, so it was definitely clear that this area was wealthy and they wanted to maintain that. And you still get that today if you go out to Northwoods, particularly onwards up to Moore Park, you get these massive estates and just golf course, golf course, golf course all around. Well, those golf courses that were mentioned in the uh, bit of blurb about Northwood from the Metroland booklet, they're both still in existence in Northwood. Actually, it's interesting that in the Metroland advertising, they would show all the golf courses that you could reach on the Metropolitan Railway. It was clearly a very big thing at the time. We mentioned right back at the beginning in the station description that there is a little stub siding leading into what was originally the goods yard, is now the uh, car park of Northwood Station. That siding was used for removing underground trains when they are on their way to be loaded onto low-loader road lorries and taken off for scrapping. Two of the types of train we know have been removed from the network this way in recent years are the C-stock, which used to run on the district line and the circle line, and also the A-stock, which used to run on the metropolitan line. We don't normally talk particularly in detail about trains in Round or Round We Go, but this seems like a good opportunity to tell a bit of the story of the A-stock as it did run on the Met through Northwood throughout its whole career. We'll leave the C-stock for another occasion when we're doing a district or circle line station. The story of the A-stock starts with the electrification of the last parts of the Metropolitan Line. By 1925, the line had been electrified all the way from central London up to Rickmansworth, and... At that point, the trains that went the rest of the way on the Metropolitan Line, at the time all the way out beyond Amersham to places like Quainton Road and Verney Junction, would have had to be steam hauled on the rest of the journey. So in fact, they'd have electric locomotives hauling carriages from Baker Street out to Rickmansworth, and then they would swap over for a steam locomotive to go the rest of the way along the line. But of course, 1933, London Transport takes over the Metropolitan Railway. They decide that they will get rid of everything beyond Amersham and closed down Quainton Road and Verney Junction and the Brill Tramway and in the 1935 New Works programme would commence on the electrification of the Metropolitan Line all the way to Amersham getting rid of the steam trains. Now designing trains which are going to 
run the entire length of the Metropolitan Line is always going to be a compromise between the needs of the passengers who are just travelling on the very busy bit within central London, who kind of need a conventional tube-style train with lots of big sliding doors, lots of standing space, the ability to get on and off very quickly, and don't want lots of seats cluttering up the space. And then, of course, you've got the passengers who are travelling almost the entire length of the railway, right out into the outer reaches of Metroland. They're paying an awful lot for the privilege of travelling on the Metropolitan Railway, and they expect to have a seat for the entirety of their journey. And this always sets up a tension between the need for lots of seats for people to sit down in comfortably, but also lots of capacity for standing passengers who can get on and off as fast as possible. The initial plan for electric trains was actually something of a stopgap. They would just convert the old carriages hauled by the steam locomotives, which were rather imposingly called dreadnought carriages, into electric trains by building some new sort of electric motor coaches, which would go at either end of the train with some of these old carriages between them, and these would be known as T-stock. But that was recognised as only really being a short-term solution. And in 1939, the underground group built a really interesting prototype uh, at Acton Works for a very radical new type of train, which would basically have carriages with seating laid out much like you'll find in a modern long-distance carriage, lots of bays of seats facing each other, but there would be a sliding door at every set of seats all the way along the carriage, which was brilliant in its way because it meant you could fit in as many seats as possible within the available space and have enough doors that people could get on and off really quickly without needing to have large empty areas for standing passengers. Though maybe a bit of a safety nightmare if you're just in a small compact area with a few people. I can see that going very wrong. Indeed. And of course, things went even more wrong because 1939, the Second World War broke out and all plans for either converting old steam carriages or building fancy new trains with lots of doors, or indeed electrifying the Metropolitan Line at all, were put on halt. And after the end of the Second World War, the plans for electrification finally got underway again when finances permitted. Now, by this point, they had abandoned the idea of both converting the old steam carriages, they were far too old by this point, and also building the carriages with doors at every set of seats. I think they'd probably identified the same problems as Emily, as also they would have been very expensive, and doors are one of the key reasons for faults developing on trains, so having that many doors would probably mean a very high amount of maintenance would be required. Instead, two prototype carriages were built using the chassis of existing older trains, and they were both taking different approaches to dealing with the problem of the compromise between high capacity, quick boarding, lots of standing, but also lots of seating space. And dealing with this compromise effectively was now particularly important because it had been decided not only to buy enough new electric trains to replace all the remaining steam trains used on the lines out to Amersham, but also to buy trains which would completely replace all the other types of electric train used on the inner sections of the Metropolitan Railway, which had up to this point been four different types of completely incompatible trains. So instead they wanted a single type of electric train which could be used on every single Metropolitan Railway service. The first of these was numbered 17,000, and it took another weirdly radical approach. It had three pairs of double doors along the carriage, kind of what you find on well, an S-stock train today, for example, but the seats, rather than like you see today on a train where they're arranged 
on a long distance train kind of in bays with the groups up against the windows and then facing each other across a table if you're lucky or no table otherwise. They had the seats in sets of threes arranged down the middle of the carriage with two aisles, one down either side of the carriage Hmm. by the doors. That's interesting. It is. It's a weird way to do things, but... I kind of like it. Yeah, it was kind of clever because it meant that you didn't need a vestibule area. The doors effectively just opened onto the bays of seating. But because you had this aisle down the sides, at either side, there was plenty of standing space. People could move around easily. And then if they were travelling a bit further, you kind of move into the middle of the carriage and sit down in the seats. The problem with that was that the seats were right next to huge wide double doors. So on a windy day or a rainy day, everybody would get cold and wet. And indeed, it was tested in the winter of 1946, which was one of the coldest on record. So it was probably particularly unpleasant for the passengers. So attempt two was tested from 1947 onwards. This was numbered carriage 20,000. And it took a much more conventional approach. It just had two pairs of double doors, like on one of the trains used on Southern or Southeastern, for example, today. It had a central gangway down the middle, and it just had bays of two plus two seats facing each other, like you'll find on so many modern commuter trains. In fact, it seemed like 20,000 was the way to go with its very conventional layout. And in 1949, the original carriage 17,000, with its islands of seats and two corridors, was rebuilt to provide three plus two seating. So basically just fitting in a few more seats facing each other in regular conventional bays. And that was what was accepted as being the best compromise solution. With that solved, both carriages were withdrawn in 1953 and scrapped in 1955. A total of 464 carriages of the new type of train were ordered from Cravens of Sheffield, The first order was placed in 1959 for 31 trains, four carriages each, which would be known as the A60 type. And then a second order was placed for 27 four-carriage trains, pretty much identical to the first lot and known as A62 trains. The lettering is interesting because you'll notice they're starting from the letter A, even though the Underground had had quite a lot of types of train before. Indeed, we mentioned the T-stock a few minutes ago, they'd had this system which had basically started with the district line going all the way from the letter A right up, eventually reaching the letter T, using up pretty much all of the letters of the alphabet. Some of them had been used retrospectively for trains which hadn't been known by those letters originally. You've explained the system to me so many times and I still think it is utterly ridiculous and makes no sense. It really is very confusing and especially makes no sense because... In 1959, they realised, well, we've used up most of the letters. We don't want to continue on beyond T for some reason. We're going to make a fresh start with the letter A, which they justified as it being the letter A standing for Amersham. I disagree with all of this. Get a better system, please. And indeed, we've messed it up further because the trains that replaced the A stock and all the others were known as the S stock. They started a new system yet again. But there we are. The A stock were quite a new radical type of train in a way. They were built from unpainted aluminium, which was in vogue for the underground at the time. They would have just been kind of plain metallic grey when they were first running. They were the fastest trains to run on the London Underground with a top speed of at least 60 miles per hour, though recorded as running at quite a bit higher than that on multiple occasions, especially on the outer end of the Metropolitan Line. And to best manage that sort of compromise between the number of seats required and the number of passengers you could fit on the train and the amount of standing space. 
They would have three sets of double doors on the intermediate carriages. The driving carriages would have two double doors and a single door as well. They were built nine foot eight inches wide, which is the widest train to ever run on the London Underground, and indeed one of the widest ever to run in the UK, kind of taking advantage of the fact that the original bit of the Metropolitan had been built to broad gauge and therefore was rather wider than most of the other railways in the United Kingdom. And that meant they could fit two plus three seating really quite comfortably. So you can fit five passengers across with a central aisle rather than having weird double aisles like they'd been practising before. However, the compromise was not entirely successful, at least as far as the longer distance commuters out to Amersham were concerned. The old steam hall trains with lots of little compartments or indeed the trains used on the electrified section out as far as Rickmansworth, they'd had capacity for about 600 people seated in each one, whereas an eight-carriage train of A-stock had only 464 seats. So lots more passengers had to stand, and indeed the emphasis had been on standing. The T-stock trains only had capacity for 900 standing passengers. The A-stock trains had capacity for 1,380 standing passengers. Anyway, with the electrification being completed, the uh, trains began running out to Amersham and Chesham from the 12th of September of 1960, with steam trains coming to an end the following year for passenger services. And the A-stop ran happily for many years. By the 1990s, they were really starting to look quite grotty. So from 1993, there was a massive refurbishment carried out, which involved ripping out all the old wooden floors and the uh, sort of blue seats in Moquette and replacing that with, well, a very modern interior, which actually looks similar to what you'll find on the tube trains running today with the kind of plastic sides on the interior and brighter seats and uh, lino-type floor. And they continued running up until the uh, withdrawals of the train started in October of 2010 in favour of the new S-Stock, which were being introduced and which took another branch on the compromise, because the S-stock would replace not only the A-stock, but also the C-stock on the circle and district lines, and the D-stock on the district line as well, and that meant they had to compromise between the needs of all of these three different lines, and had even fewer seats than the A-stock, and caused even more outcry from the poor old commuters of Metroland. But eventually all of the A-stock were removed, many of them via that siding at Northwood, uh, by the end of September of 2012. One train remained in use as a rail addition train, putting a substance called sandite on the rails to reduce the wheel slip during the autumn when there's lots of leaves on the rails, and that continued in operation until March of 2018 when it was removed and replaced with a new rail addition train based on the slightly less ancient D-stock. I was actually involved in helping to recover spare parts from that very final A-stock rail addition train when it was parked in the Transport Museum's depot in Acton, so we can use all of those parts to restore an old Q-stock train from the district line. Entirely unrelated to railways, Northwood was the site of the worst in-flight collision in UK history, and the only ever in-flight collision to take place in what is today London, although it was Middlesex at the time. On the 4th of July, 1948, two planes were flying into RAF Northolt. So you had the RAF Avro York C-1 flying in from Malta, and Scandinavian Airline Systems DC-6 en route from Stockholm into London. They were both attempting to land but they were ultimately diverted because there was too much cloud and mist in the area. 
Now, the problem was that you had two planes that were in the approach to RAF Northhold, and they were getting different directions of, of which airspace they could occupy as they were coming and going in and out. And at 15.03, the two aircraft collided just about six kilometers north of Northholt, so in the area of Northwood, and instantly fell to the ground, burst into flames on impact, and all seven people aboard the York plane and all 32 people aboard the Scandinavian plane were killed. Eventually, after the inquiry, it was said, and I quote, the cause of the loss must in all probability be found in the field of human fallibility on the part of those responsible for the control of the aircraft from the ground or the flight of the aircraft in the air. Two interesting points in the Londonist article about this tragedy were that somehow a charred envelope was recovered from the site of the crash and given to the post office and forwarded to its recipients, which must have been quite a sort of moving thing for those people to receive. And also, apparently as recently as 2008, there's still some tree stumps with blackening on them in the impacted sites near Northwood that still show evidence of these planes having burst into flames when hitting the ground. That brings us to the end of Northwood and our sort of beginning of our exploration of Metroland and touching on rolling stock. We covered a lot in this episode. For our onward connection, where I choose another route you could take from the station, I'm going to choose the 282 bus that goes from Ealing Hospital to Mount Vernon Hospital. Partially because I felt like I went to Ealing Hospital a million times when I was riding every bus in London, and it just sort of feels like it's in the middle of nowhere. It's a strange sort of space. It doesn't feel as urban as the rest of the area. And also, Mount Vernon Hospital was actually the site of where a lot of this wreckage fell in this terrible tragedy of these two colliding planes in the air. So interesting points on both sides of the 282. And that leaves us with my favourite part. It's time to put out the name of the next station, so I shall give the bag a good shuffle. You're holding it so high. Okay. Sorry, I'm picking through all of them. Ooh, Gunnersby. Gunnersbury. Interesting. Yeah. District line. Yeah, district line. Oh god, more district line. But I think it's farther out that there's less drama. Well, it is farther out, so I think there's less drama. So, yeah, let's let's check that out and we'll be back next week with that. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Round or Round We Go. As ever, we have a tube map-based challenge for you. And we actually had a response to last week's challenge, the North by Northwest challenge. Friend of the show, Simon, messaged us with his response. He then sent another message saying, oh, wait, I've done, done the Bakerloo twice, but we weren't going to include him anyway, because we love when people respond to this. He also said that he was only sending this one because he had just got up to date with the podcast. And I just want to say, if you're listening to this episode in 2027 and we're still doing this and you've just discovered Round and Round We Go, send us your response to the challenge. We are very happy to put people's old answers in. We just have a lot of fun making up these challenges. So it's great when people respond. And our challenge this week is the Acton Out Challenge. 
which means you have to find a route between Northwood and Gunnersbury that doesn't go through any of the Actons, and we want it to be the shortest possible route between the two. So no Acton stations and shortest route possible. Round Around We Go is produced and written and recorded and edited and everything by me, Emily Turner. And me, Paul Burkett-Gray. And our artwork is by the amazing Colleen McIsaac. You can find them at Little Foible Art on Instagram. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod, where we post lots of bits about episodes and lots of other things like which station we're at and that sort of thing. So please join us there. And I think that just leaves us with the references. Yes, indeed. As always, lots of different sources that have been used for researching this episode. Those include books such as The Metropolitan Line and Illustrated History by Mike Horn, A History of the Metropolitan Railway and Metroland by Irene Hawkes, The Romance of Metroland and The Golden Years of the Metropolitan Railway, both by Dennis F. Edwards and Ron Pilgrim, London's Metropolitan Railway by Alan Arthur Jackson, London Underground Stations by David Leboff, A to Z of London Underground Stations by Jason Cross, Labyrinth, A Journey Through London's Underground by Tamsin Dillon, Will Self, Mark Wallinger, Marina Warner, Christian Wilmar and Louise Koish, Why Do Shepherds Need a Bush? London's Underground History of Tube Station Names by David Hilliam, What's in a Name? Origins of Station Names on the London Underground by Cyril M. Harris, We've also used the Northwood entry on the Hidden London website and research the man with many names, Major Frank Murray Maxwell Hallowell Carew. We've used the website bloodysunday.co.uk, which has many primary sources that it draws from. For the section on the A stock, we used the books Steam to Silver by J. Graham Bruce and Underground Movement by Paul Moss. And for the section on the Northwood air crash, we used the Londonist article, London's Forgotten Disasters, Collision Over Northwood, and the Aviation Safety Network webpage. We also referred to the article, Families Return to Air Disaster, Now Almost Forgotten, by Barbara Fisher from the Uxbridge Gazette. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us again, and join us next week for Gunnersbury Station. <laughs>